What we have here is a failure to communicate. No, wait a minute. What we have here is the 100th increment of Hebrews. And hopefully we will not fail to communicate during it. Increment 100. Now, there are several interesting things about increment 100, more than interesting. First of all, the date connected with increment 100 will be for seven, Sunday, February 14th, 2021. And it is the 11th anniversary of our time at a building called the Alamo. I call it, I nicknamed it Alamo. It's our church building here in New Kensington, PA. And every once in a while, there are little indications that we're on pace here. So this is increment 100. This is the 11th anniversary of our time in the last stand at the Alamo. And it's also, I understand, Valentine's Day. And so today, the message is going to be called Halagos to Theu, and I think that also is extremely appropriate. The message is called the Word of God. All of our time here has been devoted exactly to the Word of God, which is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged blade, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and is a critic of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That's where we find ourselves in Hebrews, and we're going to take up Hebrews chapter 4, once again, starting at verse 10. Last time we kind of went from 4, 1 to 9, gave that another sweep, another mind sweep, as it were, and we're going to do that starting at verse 10, and just see how that segues into the homage to the Word of God in 412. So Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, not only for these past 11 years, but for many, many years before that, in sustaining and blessing this assembly. We entrust our spirit to you now, Father, so that our spirits will be attuned to heavenly realities and to our heavenly Savior, the man Christ Jesus, the man from heaven. And Father, as a pastor, I thank you for the privilege that you've given to me to communicate this word, the word of God, for which we have great reverence. For as the scripture says, in God I will praise his word, in Psalm 56. And so I entrust my spirit to you and the spirits of all those who hear this message today and do it in the name of Jesus Christ, who entrusted his spirit to you, Father, from the cross with results that still go on today and will forever. In his name, amen. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 10. For the one who enters into rest. That's a subject and a topic that's been taking up our attentiveness for some time now, for probably parts of several messages. Here, entering into rest is equivalent to observing God's Sabbath. 
which we've been considering recently. He who enters into rest, or the one who enters into rest, ceases from his works as God did from his. Therefore, verse 11, let us make every effort to enter into that rest so that we don't fall into the same pattern of disobedience or disbelief. That pattern is something we've been studying ever since 3.7 of Hebrews all the way through 3.19, and really it's still the subject now. The midrash on that psalm has taken quite a bit of the content of Hebrews. Now the Hebrew word for rest here, we don't have the Hebrew word in our text. We have katapasis, but the Hebrew equivalent for rest is this word, M-E-N-U-C-H-A-H, menucha. In ancient times, menucha became a synonym for the life in the world to come, for eternal life. That's what Abraham Heschel wrote in his book on the Sabbath, I believe. That's where I found it. There's a little book on the Sabbath. Menucha. Again, in later times, Menucha became a synonym for the life in the world to come, for eternal life. This is revelatory because many times in the Gospel of John we see the word eternal life, believing we have eternal life. But in fact, it means believing we have the life of the age to come. We have life of future world now by believing, just as we enter into rest by believing. Menucha is found in the Hebrew text of Psalm 23 2, for example. There it says, He leads me besides still waters or quiet waters, but literally in the Hebrew, waters of Menucha, waters of rest. In the Septuagint, Psalm 22 2, which is 23 2 of our English text, it says, he has nourished me by the water of rest. Hudatos anapausios, the waters of rest. Anapausios uses the same word that Jesus used for giving us rest when we come to him and matriculate at his college, the College of Christ. Of Menucha, Jürgen Moltmann wrote in Coming of God, page 266, the inner unity of Sabbath and Shekinah, Shekinah meaning God's splendid glory or splendor, the, unity, the inner unity of Sabbath and Shekinah is to be found in the Manucha, the rest to which God came on the Sabbath of creation and which he seeks when he desires to dwell in his creation. It does not only mean the end of God's creative and historical unrest. It is also the positive sense, in the positive sense, the eternal bliss and eternal peace of God himself. 
That is why this repose of God's is often linked with God's desire. That is the divine eschatology. That's what he calls the divine eschatology. He closes this little paragraph with Psalm 132.13 and following. Moltmann writes, Psalm 132.13 following shows the connection between Sabbath and Shekinah. The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell. Of course, there is a reference to Mount Zion in Hebrews 12, 22 and 20 to 24 in the vision of the living, the city of the living God, our great king, the myriads of angels, the spirits of just, justified persons made complete, the festive atmosphere of future world, etc. God has chosen Zion as the place of his habitation. Zion speaks of not just a mountain or a mountain range, but the entirety of a new creation that's been completed by an act of redemption. Rest for us, as I've hope, hopefully been making more and more clear, is Christic ontology. God is in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God is in Christ because all the fullness of divinity dwells in him. Colossians 1.19, Colossians 2.9. God is in Christ. We are in Christ. We were crucified with him. We died and our lives are hid with Christ in God. And Christ, who is our life, when he appears, we will appear with him in glory. So God rests in Christ. So we rest in God in Christ. Colossians 3.3. 3. We do so simply by faith. By faith, we account ourselves to be crucified with Christ in Romans 6.6, 6, to have died with him in Colossians 3.3, 3, to be raised with him in 3.1 in Colossians 2.12, to be free from the reign of sin in Romans 5.21 and following, and the fear of death in Hebrews 2.15, and certainly the fear of people and their disapproval. Paul's statement in Galatians 1.10b should echo in our hearts, echo certainly in our ears, and find a way into our hearts. He said, if I were still pleasing men, if that were my motive, if that was my raison d'etre, if I were still pleasing men, I wouldn't be the slave of Christ. The implication is that Paul once lived pleasing men. He did so to please men. He persecuted the church of God to please men. He brought back his mission reports and his sit reps about how many churches he broke up, how many Christians he caused to blaspheme and renounce their confession. He pleased men. When he was a persecutor of the church of God, 
He lived to please men. He was not the slave of Christ. He was the persecutor of Jesus of Nazareth. The enemies of God were once very pleased with Saul of Tarsus. Their golden boy. But a confrontation by Jesus himself with Saul of Tarsus on the outskirts of Damascus quickly turned him from golden boy to whipping boy. In 2 Corinthians, this term whipping boy, which I use a little bit facetiously, makes it literally true. Paul said, five times I received 39 lashes from the Jews. I'd say that they made him his whipping boy. 2 Corinthians 11.24. He didn't use that word, the Jews, disparagingly. He just used it for the people who were contrary to the gospel at the time, unbelieving Jews in that case. Paul himself was a Jew, as was John. There was never any disparaging of the Jewish people. Five times I received 39 lashes from the Jews. And then he added, three times I was caned or beaten with a rod. I understand they do that in Singapore, but the beating with a rod was done by the Gentiles, by the Romans. Then he said, once I was stoned. Now, Paul isn't neither Cheech or nor, nor Chong here. He's not talking about stoned like we here talked about today. He's talking about being literally stoned and left for dead as an enactment of capital punishment. Paul could say, I died, or I, I was crucified with Christ, or I died with Christ with feeling. Five times I received 39 lashes from the Jews, the 40 minus 1. Three times I was caned or beaten with a rod. Once I was stoned. So Paul, the slave of Christ, endured the hostility of the Jews and the Romans, of the apostate Jerusalem and idolatrous Rome. The Jews used the lash, the Romans the rod. He even endured the death penalty by his fellow Jews from Antioch and Iconium at a place called Lystra in Acts 14, 19. They left him for dead after they stoned him. They thought he was dead. They left him for dead. They said, well, we finally killed that miscreant. But as Acts 14, 20 says, and this is very interesting, more than interesting, after the disciples surrounded him, he got up and went back into the town. Men may try to take us out. God will say when we are taken out. That's his forte. That's his prerogative. The next day, Paul continued his missionary activity with Barnabas 
one of the candidates that people have put forward to be the author of Hebrews, and he headed for Derby. Paul had resisted sin or renouncing his confession of Jesus Christ, even to the point of the shedding of blood. Hebrews 12.4. So had others by this time. Some had died. James had been beheaded. None of the addressees of the Hebrews homily had done that yet. The writer said to them, none of you has yet resisted sin or resisted against unbelief and the renouncing of your confession of Jesus as the Son of God unto the point of blood. Maybe they feared that. The testimony of Paul and others and the martyrs may have freaked them out a little bit. Said, is that what we're going to expect? And so that may be added to the pressure to back off a little bit from their public confession of Jesus Christ and maybe participate in the temple sacrifices so that they could come under the protection of the Roman beast and the Babylonian whore. For the initial recipients of the Hebrews homily, faith was linked inextricably with the confession of Jesus and of his once and for all and forever self-sacrifice for sins. A confession that would be contradicted by a return to the public offering of temple sacrifices, which, and I agree with Kenneth Wiest on this point, he believed that the readers were tempted to go back and perform the temple sacrifices. I agree that that may be and, must, and even must be the case, and therefore that Hebrews was written before A.D. 70 when the temple was still standing and the high priest still offering sacrifices and the offerers of sacrifices still offering their sacrifices. Incidentally, it was the offerer himself who had to use a two-edged blade to cut between joints and marrow of the sacrificial animals. So there again, Hebrews 4.12, the Machaira, the double-edged blade there, has a connection to the sacrifices. I do not agree with Kenneth Weiss that these recipients of this epistle were unsaved Jews who made an, a false profession of faith in Jesus Christ and hadn't yet come to faith. I disagree. I think they came to faith. They were believers in Christ. They were tempted under the pressure and the threat of ostracism and even persecution to go under the protection of Judaism at the time and therefore to renounce or to stop giving a bold public pronouncement of their faith in Jesus Christ. So Kenneth Wiest, that's W-U-E-S-T, whose exegetical books I devoured as a young believer, I have to now come into a dialectical relationship with him. I agree with his take on Hebrews, that the readers were considering a return to these animal sacrifices, but I disagree with his stance that the addressees were unsaved Jews who merely made a profession of faith in Jesus. Consequently, again, my relationship with 
Kenneth Wiest and his writings has to be a dialectical one. Contrary to sin or unbelief, which is the primary factor in history's decline, and beyond natural human virtue and adherence to divinely established institutions, which is a factor in history's normal progress, there is faith, which is the supernatural factor in history's redemption or history's renaissances or new births. So I'll say that again. There are three factors in history. There is the factor of sin, the third of sin, which is the prime factor in history's decline. Secondly, there is the factor of natural human virtue and adherence to divine establishment institutions, which is a factor in history's normal progress. But then there is the supernatural factor of faith, which is a factor, a superintelligible factor in history's renaissances or in the redemption of history. In other words, in a time like we have in our present state in the United States of America, a return to the Constitution, which would be man functional in his nature, in the laws of divine establishment, will not pull our history up from the decline that it's in now. What's required is a revival of the Word of God, a renewal created by the Word of God and its reception by people into the innermost person. Contrary to sin or unbelief, I'm going to repeat that statement again because it's important. Contrary to sin or unbelief, which is the prime factor in history's decline, only unbelief in the word of God opens up the floodgates for godless ideologies, for atheistic humanism, and for a secularism that does not value unborn life or human life at all, ultimately. So contrary to sin or unbelief, which is the prime factor in history's decline and in the decline of nations, and beyond natural human virtue, which adheres to divinely established institutions as those embodied in our U.S. Constitution, beyond that there is the factor of history's redemption, which is faith. What's required today and is not being touted as the answer on news programs or in most of social media is a revival of the Word of God created by the living, active Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 then. Indeed, this is my translation for now, a working translation for now. No doubt it will be tweaked, corrected, modified, and brought up to more accuracy. But it says, indeed, the word of God is currently living and active. And as one commentator says, as such, it's vitally relevant on the level of our own time. Indeed, the word of God is currently living and active and sharper than every double-edged sword. Now, the word makaira is used here, another M word. Makaira, M-A-C-H-A-I-R-A. 
Now, Machaira, and we know, most of us who studied the word know that that's a sword, a short sword used by the Romans. It's a double-edged sword. It's about 18 inches long. But it's also sometimes interchangeable with the word rumphia, which is more of a longer broadsword, like the rumphia that came out of the mouth of the Son of Man in Revelation 1.16. Sometimes they are distinguished, sometimes they are used interchangeably. But what's even more revealing is that Machaira is used in the Greek text of Genesis 22.6 and 22.10 for the knife that Abraham was to use in the sacrifice of Isaac. It was that knife, that two-edged blade that he lifted to kill Isaac. And he was, of course, stopped in mid-thrust by a voice from heaven. So the knife there has, to, has a connection, or the Machaira, with the knife used by offerers of sacrifice. So already... This has a connection to priesthood. It has a connection. Hebrews 4.12 has a connection backward with the word heart. It's a, it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Going back to Hebrews 3.7, 3.8, 3.12, 3.18, etc. But it also has a connection forward to the priesthood and to the offering of sacrifice. In fact, 4.12 jumps pretty quickly into 4.14 where we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens and that being our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at it again. Indeed, the word of God is currently living and active and sharper than every double-edged sword. I'd almost have to say double-edged blade because it can refer to the knife used to separate the parts of a sacrificial animal as well as to the sword. In fact, Machaira is also used for the knives that were used to circumcise the male's under Joshua before going into the land. And so there's the meaning here doesn't just mean a sword used by a Roman soldier. It's therefore the word of God is currently living and active and sharper than every double-edged blade, even penetrating as far as a separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And I think soul and spirit is distinguished from joints and marrow in as much as there is a blade used by the offerer of animal sacrifices that has to separate joints from marrow, has to be very sharp. And But we're talking about a sword that's sharper than that because it pierces to the universal man. It goes into the essential inward human being, soul, spirit, heart. And so that's the sharpness has to do with the word of God being sharper than any Sword. It's also a hint here that the word of God about the self-sacrifice of Christ is sharper and more relevant than the Old Testament sacrifices that used a two-sided blade to separate the animal parts during the course of sacrifices. We'll get into some of the scriptural documentation for that down the road. I'm getting to the essentials first. So indeed, the word of God is currently living and active and sharper than every double-edged blade, even penetrating as far as a separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it's able to judge the deliberations and intentions. And noia here means the mental conceptions that follow deliberation. So it means resolutions of the heart or decisions that lead to actions of the heart. The heart here, 
this should be familiar to you. We're picking up something that we recently left behind, and that's the intentional consciousness, especially on the fourth level. It can be difficult to understand the flow of the homily here from Hebrews 4.11 to 12. It goes from a mini-dissertation on rest and the observation of the Sabbath to a kind of hymn to the Word of God. It almost seems a non sequitur. It almost seems like, how does that fit in? But I'm already giving you hints about how it fits in. Consider that the Israelites who had been delivered from enslavement in Egypt were given the Word of God in the wilderness, in the desert. It is the Word of God which is likened to the sharpest of all double-edged blades, that by cutting makes a distinction between a mentality and an intentionality of unbelief from a mentality and intentionality of faith. Thought precedes intention, and intentions lead to actions. In Hebrews, this order is acknowledged. It speaks of the word of God as a critic or a judge of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's with the heart that man believes. It's with the heart that man disbelieves. The word of God pierces and penetrates the inward person the inward man, 2 Corinthians 4.16. And it exposes the thoughts and intents of the heart. Like Yahweh himself, the word, which, here's another M word, oddly enough, memra, in the Aramaic, in the targums that we abbreviate TG or TGS, the targums, which were sort of paraphrases of the Old Testament in the Aramaic, which were very revealing, incidentally, and fit into the category of Nehemiah 8.8, where the word of God was translated and the people went out rejoicing. Memra is a word for the word. And I think the word logos in John came from this word memra in the Aramaic. So like Yahweh himself... The memra, especially as it's found in targums like Targum Neophyti, N-E-O-F-I-T-I, the word looks upon the heart. The Lord told Samuel in 1 Reigns 16.7, or 1 Samuel 16.7, I don't look like men do on the outward appearance and make judgment calls based on outward appearance for the Lord looks upon the heart so does the word in second chronicles which in the septuagint is second supplements 16:9 says that God's eyes scan to and fro across the whole earth that he might find a heart that's full meaning a heart that is totally devoted to him He looks upon the heart. He discerns the spirit of a person. The spirit is the part of the person that's orientated to heavenly things. 
the soul tends to gravitate to the earth. The idea is that the word of God penetrates the universal person, the entirety of the essential, invisible, interior person. Now the soul is where thoughts and intents lead to actions that are either congruent with or contrary to human nature. There is the soul that sins. The soul that sins will die. There is the soul that operates in human nature apart from sin. It has a kind of natural human virtue. The spirit, however, is where the person is either joined to and pre-moved, that's P-R-E, pre, hyphen, moved, by the Spirit of God, or adheres to spirits that pre-move a person to wander or even to seek to destroy. Now at this point I want to take up a passage that came to mind recently in the Byzantine text of the Greek New Testament. That means it's not found in every text. It is in the majority text. It's in the Byzantine text, and I think it belongs there. Jesus, in that passage, Luke 9.55, Jesus, the incarnate word of God, excoriated his disciples because of their expressed desire to call down fire on a town in Samaria that didn't welcome him. They didn't wel- this town didn't welcome Jesus. So the disciples said, well, do you want us to rain down fire? You know what that sounds like? It sounds like people saying, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ and welcome him, you're going to have fire rain down on you and he's going to send you into an eternal hell. Same spirit, same spirit. Rebuking them... Jesus added, first of all, he said, you don't know what spirit you are of. See, he's the living word of God, and he's discerning between the spirit and the soul, the soul and the spirit, and the thoughts and intents of the heart of his disciples. You don't know what spirit you are of. Jesus knew what spirit they were of, and it wasn't the spirit of God. Not in that statement. He was saying, you don't know what spirit is pre-moving you or pre-moved you to have that thought and to express that intention. Then Jesus added this, and I love this statement, for the Son of Man is not here to destroy men's lives, but to save them. What's he going to do to that town that didn't receive him? Send them to hell. No, you don't know what spirit you're of, do you? Save them. This is a glorious declaration from the Lord of glory. If people knew what the Son of Man was here for, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. And a lot of people are crucifying him who mention his name in songs and hymns and spiritual songs and then preach on hell. You don't know what spirit you are of, preacher. 
You don't know what spirit you are of, pastor. You don't know what spirit you are of, worldwide popular evangelist. When you talk about God destroying people in hell, raining fire down on people that don't receive him. We really have to examine ourselves to see what spirit is pre-moving us to think and intend and ultimately to act the way we do. If we cherish a doctrine which affirms that countless millions of people will end up in hell, in a fiery hell, whether by God's will or their own will. You can get around it by saying, well, God never sends anybody to hell. People will to go there themselves. Oh, so God permits them to go into a blast furnace and stay there forever without relief. I see. He won't send them. He just lets them go. Let's them go there. You don't know what spirit you're of. Whether they say people end up in hell by God's will or their people's own will, I'll tell you one thing. If we think that, we're not pre-moved by the spirit of God, by the spirit of Christ. We didn't know what spirit we were of when we believed that and when we liked that doctrine. In that dogma, we surely don't belong to him. How can we say we belong to Christ if we think and intend contrary to him and are pre-moved by a spirit other than his? A spirit that even delights in the destruction of people's lives. There is a spirit who is called, and there is a spirit that is not of God, that delights in the dismantling and destruction of pre-born infant children in the name of the mother having the control of her own body. You don't know what spirit you're of. I guarantee you, you do not know what spirit you are of. If you can rejoice in that, and if not, rejoice in it, permit it. You don't know what spirit you are of. You don't know what spirit you are of. Now, you can hate politicians all day long because they hold on to values that you disagree with. But you don't know what spirit is pre-moving you to have no value for an unborn life. How can we say we belong to Christ? He said, let the little children come to me. How much more would he say, let the little children be born? There is a spirit who is the spirit of this evil age 
And it's not the Holy Spirit. It's the spirit of the cosmos. The spirit of the age. Who is the prince of wandering airborne spirits. Who intends to steal and to kill and to destroy. John 10.10. Contrary in the absolute to the thought and intention of the good shepherd. Who lays his life down for the sheep. The great shepherd of the sheep and the savior of all humankind. The word of God permeates, penetrates is better. To the separation of the soul and the spirit in Hebrews 4.12. Where it discerns what spirit we are of and lets us know. In Luke 9.55. Let's us know what kind of spirit we have. Do we have a different spirit than the spirit of the age? A different spirit like Caleb's, a spirit of faith and love and hope? A spirit of faith in 2 Corinthians 4.13? Or a spirit of unbelief? The spirit that wants to see people destroyed is not the right spirit. We need to have God restore a right spirit in us in Psalm 51.10 and to revive us through his word in Psalm 119.25. The spirit that wants to see people saved is from God. God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world but so that through him he would save the world in John 3.17. The spirit that wants to see people saved is from God. Jesus, our great God and Savior, who was first called an archpriest in Hebrews 2.17 to 3.1, now moves nearer the forefront of God's program of such a great salvation as such a great archpriest in Hebrews 4.15, 4.14 make that, to 5.10. On the basis of Jesus' archpriesthood and on the basis and base rock of his unrepeatable sacrifice, we may now boldly approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and find timely grace to help us. Now we are presently sojourners, travelers in a no man's land. The word of God came to the Exodus generation in the desert. It comes to us now in the no man's land, which is the junction of two ages. By unbelief, we can add to history's decline and to the decline of our respective nations and communities and to our own spiritual decline by unbelief. By faith, we can add to history's redemption. By hardening our heart to God's voice as heard in God's word, we are refusing to enter into the experience of our so great salvation in time. By faith, we enter into God's rest and we begin to observe the sabbatismos That remains for the people of God. There are giants that challenge 
our progress as we enter into his rest. Before the universal restoration, there are giants that challenge us. But they will be bread for us. It only took one of David's five smooth stones to take Goliath down. While his sword took him out. David had a lot of stones. I'll let that sink in. But it took just one to knock a giant down. As Luther, Martin Luther once wrote in his song, his famous song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, one little word shall fell the prince of darkness grim. One chosen scripture, one chosen utterance from the scripture spoken in the power of the Holy Spirit. Not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. One little word uttered at the right time in the power of God is sufficient not only to resist the devil or any of his minions, but resist to the point where he must flee from us. The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged blade. Whether the blade is the knife, an implement used in sacrifice, or a double-edged sword used in warfare. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged blade in the sense that it can penetrate the invisible and the immaterial depth of the human being, the soul and the spirit. A sword or a knife can pierce the physical body or cut the joints from the marrow and the joints from the bones of a sacrificial animal. The knife used in animal sacrifices can sever joints and marrow. The word of God penetrates soul and spirit. Spirit, in this case, is the organ that's oriented to heavenly things and to an unseen realm. That's why the scripture speaks of a spirit of faith. The spirit, soul, and body triunity speaks of the whole person, what I call the universal person. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Paul expresses the efficacious wish. Sometimes prayer is simply an efficacious wish, a wish that comes true in the name of Jesus Christ. Paul expressed the efficacious wish that the Thessalonians would be sanctified spirit, soul, and body. He adds the unqualified assurance, faithful is he who calls you, who also will do it. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 The practical sanctification that he speaks of in that passage is no doubt related to the sanctification of these saints in time. The entire consecration of the whole person to God in worshipful service. Ultimate sanctification, however, is glorification. Ultimately, the Sabbath rest is the glorification of the creation, including universal humanity and the universal being of every person. 
the Bible speaks of a spirit of faith, not of a soul of faith. The merely soulish person, sukikos, that is, the person who operates only in the human nature, even if apart from sin, is not in touch with heavenly things, not naturally. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The spiritual person, pneumatikos, the person who operates or functions in that part of their being that's orientated to heavenly and to unseen things, comes to understand the things that God freely gives us in his Son and in his Spirit. The Spirit is where faith operates. It's where that which redeems history lives. It's where that which redeems history lives. Deliberations and resolutions are activities on the fourth level of the human intentional consciousness. They are the springboards for action. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Well, the Word of God discovers or discerns what you're going to do before you even do it. And before I even do it. In Matthew 9, 4, it said, Jesus knew the thoughts and deliberations of their hearts, of those of his opponents. The Word of God discovers or discerns what we're going to do before we do it because it looks upon the heart. What are you going to do in 2021 and 2022? Hey, it's a poem. What are you going to do in 2021 and 2022? You're going to hide your lantern under a bushel basket? You're going to turn back from a bold confession of faith in Jesus as the Son of God. When it becomes proper again to assemble together, you're going to forsake the assembling of the saints. When it becomes extremely unpopular. When Christianity finally becomes the focal point of hatred and hostility. When it goes past human beings to God. Recently I heard a politician who once blamed the president for the failures in his state. You know who he blames now? God. Why did God let this happen? And of course the focus of animus and hatred that we've seen focused toward people that hold views that are contrary to a pervasive ideology, that focus may very well turn very quickly to Christianity. Recently I even heard someone blame the insurrection, insurrectional activity recently on Christian homeschooled people. Not homeschooled, 
Christian homeschool people. You don't think it's going to come at Christ and at his people? They hated me without a cause in John 15, 25. You think that's changed? What are you going to do? You got plans to put your lantern under a bushel? Well, you think by putting your lantern under a bushel basket that you'll draw attention away from yourself? What are you going to do when the basket's set on fire? You're going to turn your back and turn back from a bold confession of faith in Jesus as the Son of God and the exclusive Savior when it becomes costly to do it? And I'm talking to myself here more than I'm talking to you, believe me. Hasn't cost us much up to this point. Not in this country. It does in China. Believe me. It does in Syria. Believe me. It does in Middle Eastern countries and Asian countries. Believe it. It does in Muslim countries. Believe it. What are you going to do when your Christian faith that you can be so bold about now isn't well spoken of at all and in fact becomes blamed for all the ills of society like they did in Rome. Rome's accusation against Christianity is that they hated humanity. They were haters of humanity. That's how they were perceived. What are you going to do then? What am I going to do? What are we going to do? Turn back from faith in Jesus as the Son of God and the exclusive Savior? Or press on toward the mark of the prize of the higher call of God in Christ Jesus? You're going to please men? Then you're no longer the slave of Christ. Now James 1.21 speaks of the same word, the word of God. It says it's able to save the soul. It does this partly by checking the heart's resolutions before spiritually detrimental actions are taken. Checks them, balances them, rebukes and corrects them. On the other hand, the living word of God commends and approves and produces actions that are spiritually beneficial and fruitful. The heart in 4.12 of Hebrews alludes to the heart in Psalm 95.8, which by now you should know is Septuagint 94.8, which you may also see popping up in Hebrews 3.8, 3.10, 3.12, and 4.7. And so there's a proper continuity from 4.11 to 4.12 in Hebrews. There is a fluency in Hebrews 3.7 through 4.12. The water of the cleansing and sanctifying word, John 15.3, John 17.17, 17, Ephesians 5.26, the water of the cleansing and sanctifying word has a fluency in Hebrews 4. This homage to the word of God includes a description of its function on the universal person and the operation of the creator on the creature goes into 4.13 also. Whether people want to admit it or not, we're all accountable to God and we will all stand before his tribunal. 
Blessed are those who receive his word now. That's why we're here at the Alamo. That's why we've been here for 11 years. That's why Valentine's Day doesn't mean a tribute to St. Valentine, but a tribute and a, a tribute to Jesus Christ, to God the Father, to the Holy Spirit who pours out true love in our hearts. Blessed are those who receive his word now and unite themselves with people who believe it and who don't harden the heart against it. Blessed are those who receive his word now and even who allow it to judge the mentality and intentionality of the heart. If you're used to having that happen now in the school of Christ, the tribunal before God won't be as traumatic as it could have been when some at his appearing will shrink away in shame. They'll shrink away in shame in the measure that they lived to please people rather than God. Oh, the shame won't be eternal. It'll only be momentary. But it'll be there. And I don't want it to be there on my meeting of him. I don't want it to be there for you either. So in closing, the word Machaira here also has a reference to the knife used in animal sacrifices. It is the word used for the knife Abraham was going to use to sacrifice his son Isaac. Genesis 22, 6 and 10. You see the word Machaira there. It's the word used for the two-edged knife that performed the circumcision of the men about to enter the land in Joshua chapter 5. And so there's not only a connection between Hebrews 4.12 and the preceding part of Hebrews, but also a hint at what's to come. For the Machaira, or the implement used in animal sacrifices, speaks to the priesthood that's about to become the main topic of the dissertation of Hebrews. It's a lead-in to the discourse on the great high priesthood of Jesus of Nazareth. The living God is inextricably mixed with God's living and active word. This is dramatically demonstrated in the Targums, as I said before, where Memra is used, the Targums in which Memra is mentioned. For a prime example of this, consider Targum Neophyte, the Targum Neophyte translation of Deuteronomy 32:39. This is what God says, and I'll close with it. See now that I, I in my word, Memra, am he. I in my word am he, and there is no other God besides me. I am he who puts to death the living in this world and who brings to life the dead in the world to come. Amen.